0: Bailey, and I'm the creator of the Antebellum Diaspora Project. And on today's podcast, I'm talking to author and genealogist Phyllis Biffle Gilmore. Phyllis is descended from enslaved ancestors who were forcibly migrated from North and South Carolina to the state of Alabama during the Antebellum era. I found Phyllis on social media where I learned about her work as a family historian and a storyteller. But the author is also working towards preserving landmarks in her ancestral community including the church and the graveyard that holds much of her family's history in sumter county alabama full disclosure i found phyllis on social media and later discovered that she and i are related and we share ancestral family who were forcibly migrated from the carolinas and relocated to alabama in the antebellum era hi phyllis i am so thankful that you've taken time to be with me today not Um, Only are you a US veteran, you are a published author, you are also um, a family historian
1: as well as a genealogist. Thank you for being with me. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Excited to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So I
0: want to talk a little bit about how you got started on this journey and this search to not only find out more information about your family, but to even write
1: about your family. Oh, I guess I'm going to have to start back when I was a little girl, maybe four years old, um, being taken from Detroit to Alabama to live with my grand grandparents, dropped off at their doorsteps and just growing up with these grandparents that I've, that I've never seen before. And my grandmother, both my grandmother and my grandfather were both born storytellers, but especially my grandmother and the things I had to experience with the elderly people that it was in my grandmother's circle, uh, people that she has known most of her life. And growing up with these c- circle of elders, you know, and listening to their stories, I knew deep down inside a little part of me as a little girl would one day carry these stories because I got, I really got interested in the storytelling aspect of it years ago, just growing up, going to puberty and just saying, oh, wow, there's some amazing stories. Sometimes I wish I had to listen a little bit harder. I think I missed some things, but I have enough within my toolbox to use, uh, to tell, to continue the story, um, you know, to carry the story forward. And I think that's what we're missing in today's society now. For some reason, people stop telling their stories. and, And I'm here to document that and put it on paper so the world could see who these elderly people who were born just a stone's throw from slavery, what they had to endure. And I captured those stories and now they're gonna be published. Phyllis's parents, Rufus and Evelyn
0: Horn-Biffle, were part of the Great Migration that saw millions of African Americans relocate from the Deep South to large northern and urban cities to escape the harsh segregationist laws that were created during both Reconstruction and the Jim Crow eras and to earn better living wages than they had as farm laborers. But it did not always go as easily as they anticipated, and it took some families a while to establish themselves to gain even a little financial stability. When her parents brought little Phyllis to Livingston, Alabama, it was actually the first time that she had ever laid eyes on her grandparents, Lula Young Horn, who was born to enslaved people in Mississippi, and Edgar Horn, whose parents had been enslaved in Sumter County, Alabama, just a stone's throw from the home where their granddaughter was left for Lula and Edgar to raise. Four-year-old Phyllis? was welcomed by a community of people where many of her grandparents, contemporaries, were born before the 1900s. And she spent a decade being encompassed in oral history that was withheld from the history books of black and white children in Alabama. The genealogists had been able to find documentation to overwhelmingly substantiate much of the history that was shared with her as a child.
1: My great-grandfather my grandfather's uh, father was one of the most interviewed slaves of all of the slave narratives back in the 1930s and his stories are captured in various books maybe three or four or five books that's in the library of congress so we were able as a family to get together and read those stories that he told and he left a pretty strong legacy of who he was who his parents were uh, who the slave masters were and the story about his wife and his wife's uh, family, So those all those stories are captured and, and are documented and and, and, and we we're able to really get in there and read those stories. And not only that, his daughter is one of his oldest eldest daughter, who was Annie Grace Horn Downson. She lived maybe a mile from the farm where I was raised. She's also in the Library of Congress, and she was what they call uh, a singer. And um, the Lomax came down in the 1930s and recorded her. So her music, not only is her music in the Library of Congress, but also her, her field hollers. And these field hollers were what slaves would use to escape, actually. And, you know, the slave masters <laughs> didn't know what they were doing. And I would listen to my grandparents and the elderly people who would sit in our front yard, and they would talk about these hollers. And, oh, the slave master, he didn't know what we were saying. But to hear, to sit on my aunt, what we call her Aunt Tunica. I used to sit on her front porch and listen to her do these hollers and these songs, and it was just just a, such a strong guttural sound. It, you can just hear it bouncing off the trees and the echoes. And I can just imagine in slavery how they used to 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 do these hollers to 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 warn the slaves who was escaping to be on the lookout. So that was that was that was very interesting. And to capture this, like you said, and read about it things that actually happened. So not only I was able to read about it, but I have firsthand knowledge just from these elders growing up, listening to him, to them laying out as I used to lay up under the house and listen to the elders gather in the front yard because we, as children, we couldn't sit around in front of grown folks and listen mm-hmm. I to hide up under the house and, and, and just take in all these stories. Sometimes I would just be laughing. They really didn't know what they were saying until it was repeated over and over and over again because... So for some reason, elderly people told the same stories. But I think the most exciting times, the most, the, something that will I will always remember for the rest of my life, is my grandmother. We lived so far out in the country. I mean, it was, <laughs> and I won't. I'll go into that later. But it was a slave cemetery that was maybe about uh, not even a, about a quarter of a mile in front of my grandparents' house. So one day when I was about 10 or 11, my grandmother took me there because more and more I was getting interested in these stories. And I think I captured this in my book. And she, we went to this slave cemetery and she said, told me, and that it, it resonate over and over in my mind even till today. She said, you see all these rocks and all these grays laying here, child? I said, yeah, grandmother, grandmama I do. And she said, these are the best stories you ain't never heard. I remember, I will always remember that's what she said, you know. In other words, she wanted me to capture those stories, remember them, and never forget. And and I turned around to look as I was walking away, and she she chastised me. She said, don't you ever turn around and look at them. She said, you always look forward. Don't you just remember what you saw here today. And that I will always remember because it just and chills, even as a little girl, up and down my spine, so. Well, even just hearing that is, is such a powerful thing. It almost is like
0: she spoke into existence right. what yeah. she had in mind for you that yes. you've become today. So before we move forward, I'm going to ask you, if you would, please speak the names of your grandparents and then the great-grandfather
1: that you spoke of. Okay. Now, I have two sides. My, my, my great-grandfather, Josh... And my great-grandmother, Alice. And Alice was, came from, from the, the white McMillans and Tarts of, uh, of Livingston. And my mother always carried with her, oh, you know, Alice was not, she had no black blood in her. Then I found out, you know, I used to say, well, my mother's just saying that. But then I did, after my research, you know, this is where research comes in, found out that she didn't have any. Was, um, she was brought over from Portugal as an indentured servant. And she and this, her mother, who was a slave, her mother was brought over, I should say. But her mother had a child with the slave master. And that's where my grandmother Alice came into play. So, you know, even though she wasn't really Black, but still, you know, in those days, she was Black. She, she, was, she, <laughs> she was Black. You know, they treated her no different than they did the other slaves. And my great, she married my great grandfather, Josh Horn. Who was interviewed as part of the slave na- narratives by Ruby Pickens Tart? Now, Ruby Pickens Tart, the 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 uh, the person who interviewed her, she was part of the of that uh, that whole clan that went around and interviewed ex-slaves. But she is my great grand. She somehow she's related to my great grandmother. So, and that's part of that's what we call a hush hush.
0: For as much as many Americans seem to live in denial today or wish to romanticize the common and rampant sexual assault of enslaved black women by white men during the antebellum era, it was never a secret in black or white families during or after slavery. While laws in almost every slaveholding state made it illegal for sex to occur between whites and nearly all non-white people during the antebellum era, nearly half a million biracial people of European and African descent lived in the U.S. by the mid-1800s resulting primarily from non-consensual sex between white men and enslaved women. It would be common knowledge for both descendants of slaveholders and enslaved people to know about their family ties or to no surprise that slaveholders having children with enslaved women fail to prevent them from enslaving or selling their own children, grandchildren, siblings, or nieces and nephews. It is quite possible that Ruby and Josh knew their exact family connections. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case for Phyllis's grandmother, Lula, whose immediate family suffered so much loss during slavery before Lula was even born.
1: My grandmother, who who raised me, she had three sisters and brothers who were born in slavery but were sold off while they were still nursing. Now, my grandmother, Lula's mother, was born around 1840. And all my grandmother would tell me is that her mother, Ella, told her that her children were so away from up under them when they when they were still nursing, still suckling, which I guess what that's and I'm assuming that means that they were still nursing. So Ruby Tart used to really, really like my grandfather. And you know, even some of my cousins and stuff wonder today, why was that relationship so close between her, him, and Ruby Tart? Because Ruby Tart interviewed him extensively in Alabama. So my great-grandfather Josh had 16 children with Alice. One of those 16 is his oldest, next to the oldest, my great my grandfather Edgar Horn. And my grandfather Edgar Horn was married, married to my grandmother Lula Horn, who, who the book is about, because my my grandmother Lula Horn's parents were killed by the ex-slave masters. So my grandmother didn't know who her family was. Wow. Sold, and then they were killed, and then her, her other sister Ella, who was born right before her, she was killed by the by the ex slave master. So it was just my grandmother, who at thirteen she was on her own. That was the whole. That was my initial journey is finding the offspring's or the family, the ancestors of my grandmother Lutma, whose whose family was was uh was separated from her at birth. So.
0: What an incredible story, but it certainly captures what we're trying to do here um, with the understanding that we are trying to reunite and find our family members yes. that were separated by slavery. Yes. And it's just so emotional, the whole thought. I, I mean, it's 2021, that's you know many years ago, um, but still incredibly painful to hear oh, yeah. because, yeah. And then it was very close still to mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. and the grandparents who raised you. Oh, for sure. They were just like us. They were three-dimensional people who had hearts and minds and their own agency.
1: Mm -hmm. And regardless of of how difficult life was, they loved their families. And and something I learned, uh, a story I learned in all this, because I know oftentimes I've even heard people ask, well, once slavery was over, why didn't they just leave and go up north? You know, why did some of them, why did a lot of slaves Stayed on the stayed on the plantations that they was enslaved at one time until my grandmother. I remember my grandmother telling me that her father and mother after slavery stayed because they always had in their mind that their children would return to that spot, oh. and that's why in the and I you know and then that I said oh my god that's it. I remember her telling me that you know I'm glad you shared that
0: perspective of Mm -hmm. families choosing to stay Mm -hmm. because my family has been sold off and separated. Right. And there's a chance since this was their home, they may try to make their way back to me. We know, according to historic documents, that laws and codes were created to make life for Black people who remained on plantations and farms after emancipation difficult. And at the same time, they were designed to discourage newly freed people from leaving the same farms and plantations where they had been enslaved, so that they would stay there and work as cheaply as possible, nearly next to nothing above paying for the rent, on the same dilapidated shacks that they lived in when they were enslaved. But many still chose to live within these conditions, holding out hope that their sold-off children, or spouses, or some other relatives might return to reunite with them in the places where they had last lived together. In other words, they sacrificed their personal comforts and freedoms, hoping to reunite their families.
1: And the uh, and they had and the sacrifices that they made to stay there. You know, they knew they were going to be mistreated. They knew they wasn't going to be treated fair, but for the sake of reconnecting with their children, they chose to stay rather than to, you know, it would have been easily for them to go up north, but they didn't. The sacrifices, I'm just looking at the sacrifice alone to make that choice, the choice that they made to stay rather than to leave, that tells a powerful story, you know, about family, about connections. Yeah. Yeah, they did. They really, really did they really did. And you know what? It's so amazing because I have cousins who are, you know, you have the 16 children of Josh. We're, we're a big family. So we, we have our own little Facebook page and we have our own text messages and, you know, we constantly call Josh, the uncle Tom, you know, which he was, you know, he, he, he actually trained the slave master's dogs to hunt slaves. And, so we call him that and then on the same hand, you know, it, deep in back of my mind somewhere, he was surviving. He did what he what he had to do to survive. Because of, you know, because everything you, even if you read some of his stories of white people in Livingston, they love Josh Horn because he taught their sons to to hunt deer and he taught them and you know, it's just, you know, so I wonder what was the parameters for Josh? What I mean, what was his thought process in doing what he did? You know, did he do it because this is my way of survival? Amazing stuff happened during those. I mean, it's a lot of interesting stuff. A part of me believes that he was doing what he did to survive because he doted on his white ancestors. I mean, his white uh, slave owners, you know, uh, uh, Isaac Horn, who was a slave owner, gave him well, at ten cent an acre or five cent an acre, That's why he how he got the four hundred thirty-two acres, because Josh, I mean Ike Horn, the slave master, sold it to him. And I remember and I recall and I've even did some research on it and found out to be true that Ike Ike Horn's son Isaac Horn Horn Jr. After Ike Horn died, he brought some papers to Josh and told him to sign it because it was about some cattle, some cows. And Josh didn't sign it. And luckily he didn't because he was signing, he was trying to get the land back. But I think it also speaks to
0: the complexities of the human psyche and the oh, human heart.
1: Yes, for sure. And
0: yes. one of the terms I talk about recently, and it's, it's generally applied um, in other areas, but it's called trauma bonding. Right. Oh. And it has a lot of that, um, what you're saying is just trying to survive Right. You know, trying to find ways that I can be useful to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, but also just having the ability to not hate people right. who are keeping you and your children in bondage. Mm-hmm. There also is the, there's also the complexity of that sometimes, very often we were a biological family. Oh yeah, for sure. Yes, for sure. And so there were so many layers of this. And when we look at um, that history from, mm-hmm. you know, how we live today, it was very different. And every single thing was about staying alive. Mm -hmm. We all are sort of working through understanding different things about our, our ancestors. So I was doing research. I knew that my family had been enslaved Um, in South Carolina, Horry County, um, Mm -hmm. on the Oliver Plantation. And Mm -hmm. I just happened to be reading from those same Federal Writers Project narratives that Josh has reported in, one's from South Carolina, Josh is in the one from Alabama. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at um, a narrative from a gentleman who was Oliver. I had no idea that I had relationships to the Olivers, but he was explaining that his family were DeWitts, which is my family, and that his father Mm -hmm. had been... The slave driver. And okay. so what we know about slave drivers, um, from what we have gathered, you know from you know reading various materials, is that that could have been one of the people on the plantation who could have been the harshest in their treatment of other enslaved people.
1: Sure. Yes. Again,
0: Absolutely. it was something that they had to do. either it was them mm-hmm. or it would be somebody over them right.
1: who would make their lives more difficult. Oh, yes, for sure. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely.
0: These are some really complicated um, ideas. Mm -hmm. And as someone said um, just recently, we have to be able to think a little bit more um, abstractly and not think that everything was either purely all good or all bad um, as it is with all human beings, but it is really fascinating. In spite of tragic circumstances, Lulu Younghorn was a major influence in Phyllis's life while teaching Phyllis her culture and difficult history, but she never did it with a spirit of hatred.
1: God bless my grandmother, who the book is about. She instilled in me a color, you know, it was, she would tell me, she said, I don't care if you're yellow, white, green, purple, or orange, when we cry, we all cry wet. Mm-hmm. And my grandmother was, my grandmother was not the type of person who would harp on color. I mean, I very seldom would, would talk, what would she would say anything about being black, being white. She used to tell me, cause she was a quilter. She said, child, she said, the only colors that matter are ones that I'm putting here in this quilt. And these are the stories I want you to remember. And these are the colors of people, these cl- the clothes that are in this quilt of your ancestors and your grandmama's friends who have passed on, who have a story These are only colors I want you to remember. So she was, my grandmother was an equal opportunity employer. Mm -hmm. She was, I mean, I've never and I will never meet anyone like her because she knew how to sew a divide. She know how to. She knew how. If she was alive today, I'm I'm pretty sure she can sew a rainbow into everything that's going on right now to Mm -hmm. make things. She didn't look at. Any, no matter what was going on in her life and everything around her, the racism, the Klan, you know, the, the night Riders who would appear at our door, she always had, for instance, I remember one night the Klan came to our door out in the country. They were looking for somebody. My grandfather was headed to the door and she said, Edgar, go lay back, go get back in the bed, go back in the room. He had a shotgun. My grandmother got up and went to the door, and as a little girl, I got up and I stood around the corner so I can hear everything that was going on. She went to the door and she said, you know, I can't remember how the conversation started, but I heard the white guy say that they was looking for so-and-so boy because he had did so-and-so. And my grandmama, my I remember, my grandmother told, "No, we haven't seen him around here." He said, "She said, but y'all boys sure look hungry. Why don't y'all come in here and have some of, some of Miss Lula's tea cakes?" And these, they came inside. My grandmother went to the chiffero, opened up the chiffero, and gave them her tea cakes with the big pecan in the middle. And they just sit there and they just much. They said, "Miss Lula, you make the best tea cakes in these parts." And they left. And they went off. That's why I say my grandmother was a crisis interventionist. She de-escalated the crisis, gave the the boy that they was looking for, time to get away. And she sent my grandfather back off in the room because the fear of a black man holding a shotgun. She did those three things. And that's why she she was quite a woman. That's probably why she lived to be 105 because she was very spiritual and just, I mean, her heart, she had a heart of gold. That story is amazing.
0: Um, first of all, it's very reminiscent of the story of the, the folks um, coming to get Emmett Till.
1: Right. Yes.
0: And it, like I, like I said, it could have gone a totally different way. Totally different way. And um, so that really is amazing. And just the wisdom, just the wisdom of that. But let me just make sure I'm clear on this part of the story. So the, this crowd, were they hooded or? Yeah, they were hooded. So they came into
1: your grandmother's house. Yeah, we had took a- off their hoods to eat tea cakes. We eat tea cakes. They came inside our fence. We had a fence, we had a wooden gate. They, they pulled up to the wooden gate. They, they, a couple of them, a few of them got off their horses. I think maybe three or four because I'm hiding around. So, so I, my, I didn't want my grandmother to see me. And I know three or four of them came up to the, to the um, we had a, a large front porch with a screen door. And by the time they couldn't, they didn't get a chance to knock, my grandmother had opened up the door because he knew that what would happen if she didn't. So she ended, they could have even, they, who knew what they would have done if she hadn't opened the door. But she was trying to busy trying to get my grandfather back in the room, you know, because he wanted to be there. But it was the best thing that could have happened is for him to go back into the room because you didn't want to incite, you know, and that de escalated that by itself. And she, and when she started, communicating with them, told them that uh no I don't know where that boy is, but he's not here. And then that's when she went into her spiel about them looking real hungry, you know, even though they had their hoods on, but I guess she knew what to say. And she said and she went to the she went to the uh Schiffer road, opened it up, got her tea. My grandmother made really good tea cakes because everybody knew it from from 20 miles out knew my grandmother was a good cook and she made <laughs> good desserts and she did. She really did good with her canning and she made great tea cakes. You know, tea cakes was popular in the South. That's a Southern staple was tea cakes. <laughs> and they took off their hood and they ate those tea cakes mumbling and they just, they went on their way. Yeah, she can intervene in a crisis. And I look back on that day, you know, because when you're young, you just really just, you know, you kind of take things face value. You don't look. Deeper inside to see exactly. Right. So you, but I carried this into my adulthood and was able to break it down and, and look at it and just, um, uh, just look at look at what the diagram that she built. It's like there's more to that. But she deescalated that crisis. That that the guy who they was looking for probably got away because of my grandmother. I could. I don't think. I, I mean, I can honestly say. I don't think I could have did. I don't think I could have done that, mm-hmm. knowing that I was going to be you know, treated no different than I was in slavery. I mean, it really wasn't a big difference. That's a very fine line between how they were treated in slavery and how they were treated post-Reconstruction. Right. And you say that is a very fine line.
0: And again, that's one of the things that is a misnomer. Um, people tend to think that You know sharecropping was very different because you had an opportunity you know to kind of bring yourself up Mm -hmm. when we know that it was created under a stack system created for the purpose of people never having the opportunity Mm -hmm. no to you know to actually make money Mm -hmm. um and so to force josh to be able to even have the
1: money right
0: to buy the acreage that alone is amazing
1: right And I'm wondering, and and, and a lot of things that I won't find in the book is how did Josh actually had a chauffeur, you know, to, he had a car, he had an automobile, he had a chauffeur. So I'm wondering what exactly, that's the part, that's the stuff you don't read about.
0: Right. Right.
1: That you don't read about.
0: There are so many residual factors that were caused by slavery and that have continued to affect and actually infect the African-American community psyche for generations, and colorism is at the top of the list. Slaveholders, including Thomas Jefferson, insisted that everything was better with just a drop of white blood. So while he openly praised the artistic skills and musicality of enslaved Black people, he wrote that a gifted, classically trained biracial musician, of whom he was a fan, was exceptional due to the artist being imbued with white blood. Enslaved people like Josh Horn, who were born to black parents, were constantly berated and regarded as little more than ignorant beasts based on the shade of the melanin in their skin. Color bias among black people is clearly documented in abolitionist Fanny Kimball's book, Journal of a Residence on a Georgian Plantation in 1838 through 1839, where she admonishes a black man, well, actually several Black men from singing the praises of lighter skinned Black women over Black women with darker complexions, knowing fully well the brutality against Black women that caused the variations of skin color among enslaved Black populations.
1: And, you know, Josh just learned, just like we talk about colorism, which is, was a big thing back then. Josh was a, but Josh definitely engaged in colorism. You know, he just, he didn't just, he didn't want my grandfather to marry my grandmother because the color of her skin. So he he embraced fair skinnedness, you know, with impunity. I mean, he embraced that wholeheartedly, you know, and he, you know, and it was, it was really, it was that, he did not want to marry a person, his skin color, that's why he searched out Alice and, and married Alice. And he thought anything was fair was good and anything that was darker wasn't so, but this is the same type of mentality that the slave master had, you know. That's why you right. have those field negroes and you have the house negroes. The house negro, I knew I would have been in the field, no doubt about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you had the house negroes and the spare skin, so it's just something, it's a learned behavior. It is a
0: learned behavior, but it's, it's important for people who are even going to hear this podcast to understand that when you have that mentality, mm-hmm. that you cannot love your own. No. Um, because, you know, when you, and again, it makes me think even about the possibility that, you know, maybe Josh um, was a part of the white family. Yeah. Um, and again, enslaved people were taught that if you had white blood, that you were somehow better in stature, smarter Um, than, you know, uh, people who look like you and I look. Right. But what's interesting is that we know this history. We know where it comes from. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: in many places in our
1: community, it is still perpetuated. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they don't want to admit that. I mean, uh, colorism is something difficult for African-Americans to talk about even today, openly in public. Now, we're sitting in the the house around Thanksgiving dinner, everybody in there you know, are, are African-Americans, you know, you, you can talk about it, but to talk about it openly in public, how often you actually hear black folks talking about the colorism issue. Spike Lee, I'm so glad he came out with the movie uh, 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 School Days because that kind of like <laughs> cracked the door to the, to, the, to the issue of colorism. And, you know, it is prevalent. it's prevalent, it, even today, even in Washington, DC, I, when I was dating, I went out, it's a large family in Washington, D.C., and they, and it's well known that they marry amongst themselves because they are all fair-skinned. Well, I had a date and he was a lawyer, and, you know, after the date, he, you know, talked about how nice time he had. You know, I was a great, intelligent woman, you know, doing well for myself, but he could not bring me home to meet his mother. Wow. It was too dark. This is, this is 15 years ago. He could not bring me home, you know. And it, the, the only thing that crossed my mind is like, wow, that's that's really, really deep, you know. That it sounds like something that um, that uh, European would say. Um, it comes from the same place. There are going to be people who are
0: going to actually see this podcast. They're going to be upset because we're talking about this. Right. But it's but we need to talk about it for many yeah. reasons because it is prevalent and there are people um, who are hurt you yes. know, by this still existing. And the other thing is, I've been blessed to have friends literally from all over the world. Right. And I- Find that people from Asian countries, Middle Eastern countries, this same kind of colorism exists. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who's Italian. She's the only person in her family who was born in this country, mm-hmm. um, and so she would go often back to her country with her family to visit. And mm-hmm. she would say that amongst the Italians, that it's the very same thing. That there is this colorism that exists. So even though it's not, um, it's not only an mm-hmm. issue. Um, For the African-American community, I think it's really important that we do understand um, that it is a stain of slavery. There's a very good chance that, you know, Josh's mother
1: or grandmother would have looked like you or I. Right. Oh, yeah, for sure. Josh, now, Josh was definitely the product of two African members directly from off the boat. You know, mm-hmm. he, he was Josh, if I, you know, I'm not mistaken. You know, I couldn't couldn't give him a DNA test. But I'm absolutely sure both both of Josh's parents were African. That's I mean, we've, we've talked about that um, exclusive with, within the Horn Clan. Alice was a different story. So um, but but back to what you said about about colorism, because I was a product. I was I, I felt that growing up. Um, you know, the issue with colorism. I, I mean, I'm a, <laughs> I mean, I stand, I stand before you and I can recognize, I recognize that and I can really, really um, look at that as something that was very, very prevalent it, just in my small environment, you know, cause I used to get called little black gal, come here old black gal, you know, and it was almost a term of endearment. <laughs> my grandfather, mm-hmm. who I adore, used to, ch- come here black gal. You know, you're so black, you know, come here, you know, but it wasn't in a, he said it in jest, it wasn't like he was saying it to as an offensive, as as being offensive. It was more, like I said, a term of endearment because we would, I would laugh at it. That was before I really knew what I know today. I was, I was still young, still learning. So, and it didn't, I wasn't offended by it because it was. It was normal. That was the norm, I should say. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, it wasn't an issue, but it was not until later on where I went, went to college. But like you said, there's, uh, you know, I have majority of my friends are people that don't look like me. And I, when I told, when I sat, we sat around one day and, and talked about colorism, they didn't know. They had no idea. But colorism and racism, they both are on the same continuum. They are. They absolutely are. You know,
0: so many people, um, and I can say this, you know, from, uh, you know, my experience where I didn't necessarily experience that as a child, mm-hmm. um, you know, because one of the things is that I had a father... Uh, who was just very intentional about right. telling my sister and I how beautiful we were, mm-hmm. uh, loved our hair, loved everything about us. And right. it wasn't until I got to college. And right. I remember, I've written an essay about this, but I can remember going to um, uh, a, a university. It was um, an HBCU. I was running for a campus queen. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, I remember walking past um, two young ladies
1: mm-hmm. who
0: actually looked a lot like me, who were having a conversation and Mm -hmm. um, they were saying it, you know, to the extent that I could hear it and they were saying, um, you know, she doesn't even really look like a queen. You know, she doesn't have long hair, she doesn't have light skin Mm -hmm. and I remember turning Mm -hmm. around and going back and saying, listen, I look like your mothers and your grandmothers Mm -hmm. and if you can't find a way to love and appreciate who I am, there's no way you can love appreciate who you are because I'm a direct reflection of you
1: right yeah. and
0: so as much as I love all of my family and my family's the rainbow and I've seen your family they're a oh, rainbow as well <laughs> <laughs> on the charts but I am very grateful yeah. that my children who have lighter skin right. um they have no issues Uh, about how they see their cousins who may be a darker hue or no issue about how they see their mama compared to their daddy. My husband is Mm -hmm. African American, again, just a lighter hue. And I'm just really, really grateful that at least in my family, and that's what you can do. You can work within the spaces of influence that you're in. Right. That perception right. no longer exists. And um, because I would never want my children to see pictures of my grandmother and great grandmother, which I have several pictures, great, um, great grandmother from uh, 1840 that I look so much alike right. uh, that they can see her and see the beauty of who she is as an African American woman. I had to ask Phyllis, how did she think it was possible for Lula and others in her community to be targeted with so much hatred and not reflect back the same animus and vitriolic behavior that was directed towards them? That's awesome. How do you think people have the ability to live that closely to those experiences and not be filled with hate and not
1: be angry and still treat people, all people, with a great degree of dignity and respect. You know, I thought about that over the time because I look at my grandmother who has, her life at 13 years old was horrendous where she had to, her her older sister who, her her mother didn't think she was gonna have any children after her children were sold away. My great grandmother, Ella, I mean, I think it was years before because my grandmother's sister Ella wasn't born until 1867 1868 then my grandmother came along in 1883 and so she was a later life baby and for mm-hmm. Ella's children to be born to be sold in slavery and I think when when the slave master killed my her her daughter Ella I think my Ella's I mean yeah once my, my grandmother's daughter Ella was killed by the slave master. I don't think her heart could take it, so she died. The next night huh. she was died of, of a broken heart. So my grandmother had to see that, and she had to see my her father, Joe Young. He just disappeared because he was just so hurt. Nobody seen heard from him since. And Ella, her her mother Emma died. Her sister Ella, she was left to keep her sister Ella, who was. She, Ella didn't die right away because, but he beat her so bad that she died maybe a month later. So my grandmother was 13 and she had to take care of Ella mm-hmm. until she passed. So my grandmother was 13 when she left to go to work for, for the White Williams family. And still after seeing all of that, so much love. And so, you know, and the only thing I could attach it to is this, she, her, she had such a, she was so spiritually grounded. That's the only thing I could think of for a person to bury that kind of hate after seeing those things in her lifetime, you know, one thing after another, after another. And I think it was her spirituality mm-hmm. that made her the person that she has that wisdom, you know, and then you're talking about a person, my grandmother didn't know how to read very well, but she knew the Bible and she
0: believed
1: and she believed in, she believed in God. And it was definitely if I can't say anything else. So not only is my grandmother, but maybe those people, those other folks we think of who had been treated the same way. Now in my book, <laughs> I there was two women in there. You know, they're really colorful characters who wasn't as 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 had, didn't have. I mean, didn't have that 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 ability to to overcome and forgive like my grandmother did, and it is well known in there. But they were powerful black women who were part of my sphere, who made me the way I am today, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. my grandmother. So when they say it takes a community, it takes a village, mm-hmm. I totally, totally believe in that concept because my grandmother and who you read about in the book, Miss Sugar and Miss Evelyn. And Miss Jubilee, the woman who was a slave why I used to sit on her front porch, and she would tell me how she put the roots on, on the slave master. All these women are part of me. All their, all their stories, I've taken a piece, take a piece, of, and all their stories, but especially my grandmother, looms large over it all, though. So That's an amazing
0: legacy, though. They were preparing you um, you know, for where you are today. And it also, again, speaks to the fact that as a community, we're not a monolith. You know, we think differently, we feel differently. But as you said, it takes all these different personalities. So let's talk a little bit it, uh, about the book. You mentioned it a little bit, but I do want to share uh, with the audience that as a part of um, this project that I have right now, that I was able to find information in a, um, a, a website that actually matched DNA. Um, and I found that I was related to someone in your family, uh, Ike Horn. Who was a slaveholder of, um, of Josh also came from North Carolina. So mm-hmm. a lot of these families actually left the Carolinas and moved to Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, mm-hmm. taking families with them. Um, and so when you shared with me about Josh Horn, and I went back and I read his interview in the Library of Congress um, in the slave uh, narratives. Uh, I was shocked to learn that like my Campbell family, his mother was Anne Campbell. That explained at least one of our family connections and that information about the slaveholder, Ike Horn, whose family migrated from North Carolina to Alabama, helped me to find other places where my family had been enslaved. Well, let's talk a little bit about the book, which I'm so excited to hear about. Now you've got a book that's going to be coming out in 2022, is that correct? Right.
1: Can you tell me just a little bit about it? It's, um, it's called Quilt of Souls, and it's it, it'll be out in December 2022. Um, it's about my grandmother that I've talked briefly about, Lula Horn, and a little bit of touches on a little bit of her, her family. But it basically talks about my grandmother, who was a quilter. And she have a very interesting history with quilting because she only made quilts out of the clothing of people that, have, that had passed on. If they mm-hmm. hadn't passed on, then she couldn't make the quilt. And so these quilts were almost like, like, considered as talisman, because she felt that if you take new cloth and mix it with old cloth of people who had died on, that would, that's very superstitious for one thing, and number two, it would disrupt what the quilt is supposed to represent. So the quilt is something that a person, a family member, because uh, for instance, when a person I used to watch, a person would would pass away in the country. My grandfather would go to the funeral and he, and when he comes back, he would have a big bag, a, a big sack of, of clothing. My grandmother would make the quilt and the family member would in turn come and pick up that quilt, and my grandmother would wrap it around them. So that represented that this quilt will keep you, you know, anytime you're going through hard times or difficulty. Take that, and you wrap it around you, and all those spirits of those people, it became a living cloth, and because the the the, the spirit from those people in the in that quilt would cover you. So, and that's what my grandmother believed. And that's why I have a Quilt of Souls. And, 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 and with that quilt, and I'm the one who gave it the name Quilt of Souls. She didn't, she used to just say the quilts. I mean, she didn't really name it. So I thought it was up to me to name it. So that's why I named it quilts, Quilt of Souls. And I used to watch them when people used to come and pick up these quilts, it was almost like a, a ritual. My grandmother would pray over the quilt when she, once um, she completed. Then we would wash it in her special potion and we could never wring the water out of the quilt. We would have to just take it out of the pot and just throw it up on the line and let it dry in the sun. Because if you wring it, that was an omen. You can't, it wasn't supposed to wring out a, a quilt of souls. You just have to let it dry naturally and then the person would come and pick it up. So the book is about the stories that are in the quilts. When the people would come, my, and my grandmother, when my grandmother was sitting in the front yard, front yard making the quilt with me, she would tell me the story how the person lived and how they died, exactly who this person was, um, and all the cloths that clothing that's going into the quilt. Sometimes she didn't have enough, so I would run out to the smokehouse and get another bag of her scrap quilts of leftovers from other people who had passed on, and she would tell me the story of who these people were and. Every person had an amazing story. There's a little more to it, and it's a powerful story in each of those chapters. And by the time the person finished reading the book, they would come to embrace my grandmother and wish <laughs> that they had known this woman. Because everybody who had ever read this book, you know, would leave with that wow factor. Wow, this what a woman, you know. And and it goes on to tell you how the people that I grew up with, the women who were instrumental in my life, my grandmother's friends and those people, I would, those older women, I would sit on the front porch and they would tell me their story. The story, it goes on to tell you about who these people were and how they impacted my life. You know, even as I became an adult, they were still a part of my life. They were the people that sustained me through some very rough periods in my life. I only had to go back and look. And my grandmother had told me, whenever you hit on hard times, I want you to take your quilt and I, and I want you to remember the stories that I told you. Mm-hmm. Those stories is what pulled me through some very, very, very terrible times in my life. And that is the book in, in, in a nutshell, pretty much. That is so amazing.
0: And I really appreciate you sharing this with me. I, and as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking that she has given, given you, um, you know, all of these amazing stories, but also probably some of what was given to her that probably comes from Africa, from the belief system. And it's just beautiful. It's, I, 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 it's just very moving, it's very moving. And I think, um, again, you may maybe even given us a new tradition to think about. Um, Ways that we honor our family that has gone on. And also to know that, you know, we can hold on to things that remind us of them that give us strength in our darkest hours. And that is a beautiful thing.
1: And you have to, and I tell people whenever I go on public appearances, I tell them that, you know, because I, I, I remember a, a person stood up in one of my presentations and told me that her brother took an old quilt. And he used it to fix cars. he lay on the ground to fix, fix cars and oil changes. And, you know, and I, and, I, and I asked her, I said, you know, I said, I'm a firm believer that every artifact from the past, whether it be a quilt, uh, a roach, an old tea kettle, it's a story behind it. Mm-hmm. And if you don't ask somebody, I mean, it's best to ask the person while they're still alive, what's the story of that, you know? Yeah. Once these people are gone, they are gone. The story goes with them. And so some, at some point in our lives, we just stop embracing that oral history, you know, and we have to get back to that, you know, especially the kids that are coming up now. You're going to want to, you're going to, want to know the history of your ancestors. You know, you're really going to want to know that. And the best way to find out is ask that elderly person while they're still alive right now
0: and i think the other part as we started off this conversation um if there is if there are any feelings of shame
1: Mm
0: -hmm. i suggested anybody just go and delve into your family because you had to come from people who have some greatness in them to have survived to bring us through so um again you share so many amazing things and i will say um the quilt is pretty magical because it brought us together Phyllis initially caught my attention on social media because she was engaging in conversations with her large number of social media followers about her grandmother's quilts, and I had just been gifted a quilt that was made by my grandfather's sister in the 1940s. She undoubtedly learned the skill from the older women in her family, and Phyllis's story made me realize what a jewel I had acquired. So I inevitably reached out to the author when someone on the DNA matching website, Jed match, who had used Phyllis's email address, was a match to me. That's when I messaged Phyllis to let her know that she and I are related.
1: You never know what, what blessing is going to come. You don't know what kind of wh- where it's going to come from, where that message is going to come from. Well, I'm going to
0: ask you for just final words. And again, Phyllis, um, I just want to thank you so very much. Um, I've learned so much. I felt like I knew so much of the story. And today I realized how little I actually did know about it. And I am so glad that you took the time to be with me today. But I just want to, I'm going to ask you for a final thought. For anyone who is on this journey of discovery, who may have, you know, a, a few stories here, a few stories there, what would be the best advice that you would give them in terms of Starting to go down this journey of discovery of finding out about the amazing people um, that they were, who their ancestors were, who they're related to, and um, what
1: would you share? I would say document, 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 interview, interview, interview. Whoever is alive, if you have elderly people that are in their 70s, 80s, 90s, find the eldest person in that family line and just sit down and just have a talk with them you know, because these people are a, they have a wealth of information, you know, that a lot, I get some people who tell me, say, well, you know, and which I know this does happen because of a lot of our families are still closed mouth because of trauma or things Mm -hmm. they don't want to reveal or, 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 or to get out publicly. But if you get an elderly person by themselves and they will talk and once they start talking, you just document and just follow along with everything they're saying, because there's something in that story of magic in those stories that they have to tell. And then you go to the next, uh, uh, the next elder per, eldest person in, in the family and just keep talking to, because that's the, that's, that's the only way we're gonna find out things is by talking to your elders. And that's something that we don't do as as you know, as much as we used to do, you know, I used to I used to say I would love to go in a nursing home. All those family elderly people in there who never have any family members come and talk to them. Just imagine the kind of the, the kind of information that they have. They'll be more than willing to sit down and talk to you just to have somebody to talk to and mm-hmm. have a wellspring of knowledge you know, and I, you know, but their family members, their, their children don't want to talk to them. You know, they act, they have nothing you know, like everything they have is irrelevant, but all those irrelevant information has a serious tone of relevancy somewhere. And I would say, find out the meaning, find out you have old quilt, old brooch, old clock, See, could you get the story behind it? Then you can write a book. I bet you, if you start looking at all those pieces, you yourself gonna be able to write a book. Because like my, my, my motto is everybody has a story, but it's up to them to write it. Don't not only write your story, but write your story. R-I-G-H-T. <laughs> everybody have one, but it's up to you to choose to write it, whether or not you're going to write it or not, because it's something that you need to pass on to your children. And so they can pass it on to their children. So a lot of generations gonna follow. And if you don't write it, a lot of generations a lot of generations gonna miss out on a wealth of information that could have been, you know, discovered. And now you're having a hard time discovering, just like I do genealogy, genealogy work. And I have actually had people who did not know who their grandfathers were mm-hmm. and their grandfather's spot.
0: That's bad, that's not, that's not very good.
1: You're right. And, they, and they've
0: never asked the question. Like you were saying, I, I love the idea of writing the story, R-I-G-H-T, because what we know um, just from history as we have seen it today, um, if you don't write the story, then other people are going to write the stories about you, the correct it might story. not
1: be correct. So write it and write it.
0: Wow. Well, listen, I just wish you well. Um, I know you've been doing a ton of these interviews. I'm so glad that you've taken the time to be with me. And um, again, it's just, um, it's such a blessing um, to know you and to have you be my family. And I know that the ancestors are rejoicing that we've made- They're
1: dancing. I hear them (laughs) on the top of my roof (laughs) and it's not the reindeers either. It was a pleasure being here and hope to come back i mm-hmm. so mm-hmm.